Well, we're back again into Hebrews, and actually this time I'm using the revised version because somehow it was well, the New International Version because somehow chapter 12 is a little bit difficult to understand unless you look at the modern translation. It uses a little bit of, um, how can I say, old English. Anyway, this is a complete contrast to what we've been dealing with. Um, I suppose it's not as exciting in chapter 12, but on the other hand, very important, as you'll see. Now, starting on the first verse, which is where I ended last time, uh, which says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. So in contrast to what has been basically said in the previous chapters, the whole point here is that we are facing a struggle. Um, chapter 12 makes out that it is not easy. Uh, we cannot just simply accept that once we come to Christ and live by faith, it is, everything is going to be a bed of roses. I mean, it certainly hasn't been in my life. And uh, all I can say is that I think the various hardships and sufferings and tragedies that I've gone through have strengthened my faith. So let's see how Paul describes it to the Jewish people. He's saying, um, first of all, that there is a tremendous witness surrounding us. And, you know, I think that's one of the powerful things about my life. And one reason why it's important that I do have a ministry, because my whole life from beginning to end is a testimony and a witness. And this is what Paul is really referring to, is the importance of the witnesses that have gone before us when he says surround us. Uh, because that includes me. <laughs> and, but he says, despite all of this, we've got to fix our eyes not on people or persons, but on Jesus. There is a danger in the established churches to, um, to elevate people to position as saints or mark them out as, as being special. But Really, the exhortation of Paul is not that. It is simply fix our eyes on Jesus. And then he goes on uh, in doing that in verse 2. Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith or perfecter of our faith, because he will enable us to be presented before the Father, he says, Jesus, who for the joy of the future 
and the joy of the coming kingdom endured the cross, its shame, and as a result sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And in verse 3, consider him, that is Christ, to endure such opposition from sinful men. So even Jesus had to suffer rejection, affliction, persecution, torture, and crucifixion in order that he might take his place in heaven. And as Paul is saying in verse 3, he had constant opposition. I mean, if you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, it was a fight against opposition and persecution. It wasn't as if Jesus was walking about there just healing everybody and raising the dead and uh, preaching. He suffered enormous persecution. I mean, in his own city, they tried to kill him, throwing him off a cliff. And so for us, we must be prepared to face persecution. And in verse 4, it's not only struggling against persecution, but he says, in your struggle against sin. Now, that's not just personal sin. That is the evil of sinful people who surround you because he says, in your struggle against this opposition, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Sadly to say, in the generation in which we now live, Christians are the most persecuted minority in the world. And it's almost on a daily basis Christians are being killed for their faith. They've been, well, you, you, you can find it almost every day that somewhere in the world Christians are not just being persecuted and go to prison, they're actually dying for their faith. So it's slightly different to what Paul said. And in verse 5, he says, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that calls us sons. And it's very clear that some of the difficulty that we go through, now surprise, surprise, Paul is very clear on this, that some of the difficulty that we get through is not just persecution, opposition, but it is discipline from the Lord. Now, this is a very important thing. I don't hear preachers talking about this, I'm afraid, and yet it is such an important thing because here he says, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord only disciplines those that he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And this is leading on to the way he describes it in your hardship as discipline. I have to accept that the hardship that I've gone through, and I don't, people will never fully understand the hardship that I've gone through in my life, the constant rejection, the 
fact, I, I, I fought to get support for the first half of my life. Virtually, I had no support. But in verse 7, he puts it, endure hardship as a discipline. Because in this, only when we're facing hardship and discipline do we realize that God is treating us as sons. He says, what son is not disciplined by his father? Oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> this, this, this comes to such an important critical point because today there is not this level of discipline in the home. There is not. And in fact, it's virtually illegal in most so-called Christian countries to discipline your children. You're not allowed now in England to smack your child. You're not allowed to punish the child. And it's wrong because, yes, I must admit, I had discipline as a boy. I, I wasn't always good. I was disobedient. I was rebellious. And I had to face discipline. But it's that discipline which brings your character. And here Paul is saying that if you're not being disciplined, it's because you're not a son. Wow. But that's what he says. He says in verse 7, uh, what son is not disciplined by his father? And if you are not disciplined, and he says everybody undergoes discipline, unfortunately, even in the schools that doesn't apply today, then your illegitimate children are not true sons. Wow. What a statement. God says, if we don't go through this, this correction, this discipline, we're not regarded as true sons of God. And <laughs> verse 9, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. You know, the sad thing is, it doesn't seem to be recognized by leadership, those in government, those in senior positions, that actually children want discipline. Because I remember this, that um, when I was working with young people many, many years ago and taking uh, groups of young people away on the holiday tours overseas, I found out that what we'd had to have was discipline. And what I found was that we would set uh, as few as possible, we would set rules, regulations. But the fact was that because there weren't too many, I could keep that level of discipline. I had to do it even with tour groups to have a level of discipline. But the people loved it and they respected it because they saw its purpose. And so although in verse uh, 10, our fathers disciplined us, but God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. And in verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. However, later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So you understand how important it is, even in our Christian experience, that God does train and teach us.
Then it comes to verse 12 where he says, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees in the sense very much that under the hardship, under the difficulty, it might make us weak in the sense that, you know, enduring hardship, you don't always come initially come out of it strong. Very often you come out of it temporarily weakened by the hardship, but the longer term makes you strong. It's just as with fasting, which, and fasting is a biblical discipline. Did you get that? The teaching of the scripture on fasting is a discipline. And I do admit that when I fast, I come out of it a little weaker, but it's for the greater strength that I gain spiritually in order to do it. So therefore, um, we need to be strong even under discipline. And then in verse 13, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. In other words, that we encourage one another. We, we literally try to make things easier and help those who are going through difficulty. When it says make level paths, there's no use putting obstructions in the way. And I certainly know that in the years of my early years of my ministry, people would put a lot of obstructions in the way, try to stop me. Oh, <laughs> I don't know whether it applies quite as much now because I'm a bit old and obstinate, but certainly in my youth, although I was obeying God, people would put obstructions in the way and try and stop me, and I had to fight for it. So, the injunction is that we don't make life difficult for others um, so that we're not disabled but healed. And then in verse 14, we're moving on to something entirely different because here he's saying, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, while it's saying every effort to live in peace, that is a sense of responding to discipline that we don't fight amongst ourselves. But it does not mean that we don't go to war against the enemy. And I want to be very strong at this point. The scripture is very clear that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the forces of evil. So while the scripture is saying that, and while it is saying here, Paul is saying, make every effort to live in peace, that is living in peace with fellow Christians, our brothers, our sister. But it does not mean that we tolerate the attack of the enemy without fighting. Why? Uh, when people say uh, the Christian life should be all peace, then why does Paul say put on the armor of God? and refer to the helmet and the shield and the breastplate and, and the sword. No, we are in a fight against evil. But this is living at peace with brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Verse 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that there's no bitter root which cause trouble and defile many. This is that bitterness that unfortunately can come amongst Christians, that can divide them. And um, we must be so careful that there is no immorality, uh, but it's, that's including Esau, who actually sold his birthright for a single meal. You know the story. And we must be so careful because when he lost that inheritance, verse 17, afterwards he wanted to take it back, but he couldn't. He'd sold it. it was, he was rejected. And there is a danger that if we reject the things of God and the challenge and the things that we're talking about in this chapter, we can cut ourselves off from the greater blessing that God wants to give us. And Esau never got it back. He couldn't bring a change of mind, although he sought the blessing with tears. And then in verse 18, um, Paul is putting it in a different way. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to a voice speaking with words um, that were so loud and so awful that uh, people didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to bear the command. But, he says, uh, even if an animal touched that mountain, I think he was referring to Sinai, actually, in this case, that it had to be stoned and killed. But uh, even Moses at that point was trembling with fear at the holiness. But in verse 22, you get the other side of it. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands on thousands of angels, you to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So we're coming to not a place of rejection, of fire, of blackness and darkness, but we're coming to a place of joy in the kingdom, look what it's saying. We are come to the assembly of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the thousands of angels. We come to the church, those who are firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, and we've come to God as a righteous judge, but to come through Jesus, the mediator, uh, and, and that means we come with no fear. But then it comes in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. It's referring back to the chastisement of the, the son. Because it says, see that in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him that speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, this is quite an unusual challenge here, that 
people who refuse to listen to God's voice on earth, how much more if will we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? In verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. This is God's judgment. And there is a time of judgment coming. And I believe that we're coming very close to the return of Christ. And I'm going to say something very positive here, because the scripture warns us in so many places starting in Matthew 24 and other scriptures that before Christ comes, there'll be wars and earthquakes and signs in the heavens and on the earth. And I believe, and I don't hear other people saying this, but I am absolutely convinced that the floods that we're experiencing this year, the fires, the wildfires that have destroyed um, not just houses, but in some cases whole cities. And it seems as if this, uh, this, this world has been shaken by not just earthquakes, but by um, serious forest fires greater than anything experienced before in places where it wouldn't be expected. And I see that even in the dry deserts in California, they experienced floods that they haven't seen for hundreds of years, flooding the desert. And yet, of those floods also have come in the wrong places where they've destroyed houses and killed people. And I believe all these things are not just a question of global warming. They may be caused by global warming, but whatever they're caused by, they are the fulfillment of prophecy. Because the prophecy is clear that before Christ comes back, there will be um, signs on the earth, signs in the heaven. And, and it refers, of course, because in those days they didn't experience the same floods, <laughs> not since Noah's day, but they did in Noah's day. But literally, I believe that the wars that we're experiencing today, the earthquakes that we're experiencing, the floods, um, the rain, the fires, and more are all prophesied in the scripture that they have to happen before Christ returns. But through it all, I know that when Jesus comes back, he rules the world, and he will rule the world that he finds when he comes back, even if we are concerned with water levels, concerned with, with sea levels, uh, the melting of the ice caps, the changing of the climate. God knows all this, and Christ comes back to this. Mm. And that's why he's saying the removing of what can be shaken and created. And he's talking about this. He says, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Anyway, you come then finally to verse 28. 
Therefore, since we are receiving that a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so we're going to be part of a kingdom that will not be shaken by these things, that will not be affected by floods and fires and earthquakes. So he ends up by saying, let us be thankful and so worship God with reverence and accept that our God is a consuming fire. Yes, God has all power. And I believe, I certainly believe in my own life that before Christ comes back, I will be a witness of the awe-inspiring power of God. And yes, God will destroy wickedness. God will destroy the evil. Today, I despair of politics, of governments through the whole world. I find very few places where, not even in Israel at the moment, certainly not in Britain or in America, is there a level of government that is right and godly and solving our problems but God, when he comes, will come as a consuming fire and destroy all the opposition and set up a perfect kingdom, perfect in every way, in administration, in government, and in even in the weather and the geological aspect. God bless you. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. When you are committed to and support the gospel, then stand on this promise that when you give to the extension of the kingdom, God will supply all your need. Jesus called it giving and receiving. This year God has given us wonderful opportunities to preach the gospel in Armenia, Georgia and Poland. And we continue to support Ukraine by distributing humanitarian and spiritual aid. For 12 months, our staff have helped the displaced, vulnerable and injured, supplying food and medicines. To make a donation, visit eurovision.org.uk forward slash donation. We would like to give you a free gift. David Hathaway's Prophetic Vision magazine is available free of charge. All you need to do is ask for it. This faith-building resource will show you the path to revival in your life and ministry. To receive this free magazine, visit eurovision.org.uk forward slash magazine. Strength for now and for eternity. David will guide you through the Apostle Paul's letters to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. David has written this book to strengthen your faith at a time when everything around us is being shaken. Join David as he delves deep into the truths of the Bible. Order David's book, A Firm Foundation, by visiting our website, eurovision.org.uk forward slash shop.